Good morning. Welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. Welcome back to our series entitled Rebuild. Once again, we're working our way through the book of Nehemiah. We're actually going to be going into December looking to finish that out. Uh, but we have been studying this, this concept of renewal, revival, rebuilding. And so once again, that reminder for us, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, king of Persia, he heard about the condition of the walls, that things were broken down, the walls and the gates. His heart was burdened for it. In chapter 2, we see that he was able to receive from the king. Together they worked, rebuilt the walls. In the process, though, there was outside conflict, internal opposition, dealing with distractions. They looked at things that mattered to God. And last time together, we explored what were some of the ways to respond to God's word. Uh, we, we found that they were spending hours in the Word of God, and we looked at what our response should be, a handful of those responses, one of which that they looked at was to celebrate the festival of booths. It was a, a reminder of God's deliverance out of Egypt. So these booths, these little tabernacles or shelters, if you would, they were to be constructed temporarily and spend some time honoring and celebrating God's deliverance. So that was in chapter 8. Today we come to chapter 9, and it is a longer chapter. We're not going to be able to read every verse and every word of that, so I'm going to challenge you to do that on your own. But here in chapter 9, it's an extended prayer. In fact, it is the longest prayer in the Word of God outside of the book of Psalms. So this is a lengthy prayer. It's got a lot of biblical quotations, recollections, images, phrases. And so there's some great memories and a little bit of history being taught and recounted in the midst of this prayer. But the theme today is about revival. How do you seek revival? How do you seek a refreshing, a renewing, a rebuilding revival in our hearts and in our lives? And so in chapter 9, again, they've gone through the physical. They'd spent some time rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates, putting the physical back into place. But they're still working on the spiritual. How many of you would say, I'm still a work in progress when it comes to spiritually my walk with God? And so that's where they are at. They're still learning, still growing. There's some things that needed to be put into place. And so the spiritual is being emphasized. Yes, the, the walls and gates and things are ready. But these last number of chapters, we're examining the spiritual. Rebuilding lives, rebuilding families. I trust that that is your heart and your goal as well, that you want God to do a work in you personally, in you spiritually, in your family, in our church, in our land, in our nation, this renewing, rebuilding, refreshing, reviving. So we're going to look at a handful of ways. How do we seek after this renewal, this refreshing, this revival of God? First of all, as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 9, a first concept is this. We must get right with God. Check it out. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sin and the sins of their ancestors. 
Now, so many times in our day, in our age, in our culture, maybe in your own heart or life or family, we've had this thought or phrase, oh, I want God to bless me. We all want to be blessed of God, and yet so many people want the blessings of God in a life that's not lived for God. And so right off the bat, they've been going through the physical. Now they're working on the spiritual. And the first concept we see in chapter 9 is Nehemiah and the people here of God, they were looking to get right with God. So we're going to just quickly cover a handful of concepts that they explored in this process of getting right with God. First of all, we see fasting is in there. Fasting was one of the things they did at the end of chapter 1. It says they gathered together and were fasting. Now, in our day and age and culture, the only thing that people tend to fast is drive fast, talk fast, and maybe buy a whole lot of things fast. We're not a culture that typically gets involved in fasting, Most of the time, fasting would refer to abstaining from or giving up food and drink to spend time with God. People say, I'm fasting, and so maybe they will give up a meal or give up a day's worth of meals, or people would go on a three-day fast. They would give up food and drink and spend time with God. Certainly, food and drink is not the only thing that can fast. Sometimes people will fast uh, other items, fast the consumption of television, faster consumption of social media. S- some of you right now thinking about that, like, you mean I would not be on this for a day or two or three? I mean, just people, are, you're going through withdrawals right about now, maybe even worse than if you were to give up food. But it's the concept of giving up something to spend time with God. Now understand, fasting is not just about what you give up, it's about what you include. So fasting, if people were to fast and say, I'm going I'm to fast a meal today, or I'm going to fast today from food, if you just go through the day and don't eat, but you don't replace that time eating with time spent with God, in God's word, praying, worshiping, etc., then you've just done a crash diet. You've not really been fasting. You've just kind of skipped a meal. And so sometimes in our culture, we say, oh, I fasted today. No, you were just a little too busy. You didn't have time for lunch, so you called it a fast. Now, in Nehemiah's day here, they were fasting. So doing away with food and drink, and certainly that makes a little bit of a cost involved. Because how many of you like to eat and to drink something, right? Uh, some of you are big breakfast people. Some of you are like, I don't really do breakfast anyway. Hey, I know, I'll fast breakfast every day the rest of my life. Not much of a sacrifice there, is it? Now, for you, maybe skipping a meal that you would normally love to eat, lunch or dinner, or fasting from television, fasting from media, whatever the case might be, we're giving something up that means something to us and spending time with God. It's, it's showing, hey, I'm serious about my walk with God. I, so much so, I'm going to put this aside 
because I, I love me some lunch, right? I love me my dessert, whatever that might be. I'm going to give this up to spend time with God. I'm going to spend time in God's word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to spend time worshiping. So rather than getting and eating that meal that I've been looking forward to, I'm going to fast that. I'm going to do without that to spend the time with God. It's showing that there is a heart for and the priority of God. Now, we tend to not do as much in our day and age and culture, but this was a part of them seeking to get right with God. God, we're going to focus on you. We are going to fast. Maybe God would speak upon your heart today or sometime this week to fast a meal or a couple of meals, or to fast a day, or to go a period of time without taking part in some of those other things. What would I give up? But not just what would I give up, what would I then replace it with? What would I include as I spend time in God's Word? I spend time in prayer. I spend time with God. So they were looking to get right with God. It says that they were fasting. Secondly, it says they were wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now, we, we typically don't do this either. Sackcloth and ashes, as other versions or translations would read. Here's what we know. You and I tend to dress for the occasion, right? I mean, if you were to go to a funeral, or if you were to go to a sporting event, or if you were to go to a wedding, or if you were to go to work, you would probably dress for the occasion. Now, there's always exceptions, right? You've been to certain weddings, and, and maybe someone, they showed up dressed a little differently. Or you've been to some funerals, and someone shows up dressed a little differently. But we tend to have certain clothes for certain items. Some of you, maybe you've got a kind of a work outfit or a uniform. You're provided a uniform. I, I know when I worked in McDonald's years and years ago in high school and, and early uh, my freshman year of college, I had the great fancy McDonald's outfit, the shirt and the pants and, and the apron. I'm trying to think if I had a hat or not. I think I might have had a hat. Anyway, it all got greasy, cooking and flipping burgers, and you know, you're always kind of wiping but we all had a McDonald's outfit. Now, I assure you, I did not wear that McDonald's uniform anywhere else but McDonald's because I smelled like McDonald's grill. And so there, there's a uniform for McDonald's. Maybe you've got one that you wear. Uh, perhaps you, you play in a, in a sport, whether in middle school or high school or just for fun, if you're playing basketball, football, baseball, volleyball, you're in swimming, whatever, you've got certain kinds of outfits or uniforms or jerseys. And so what you wear for football is going to be a little different from what a swimmer would wear. True? So there's certain, when it comes to clothes or certain kinds of outfits, and then then how many of you like comfy clothes? How many of you, you know, you are sweatpants at home kind of people? Or maybe you're t-shirt and comfies or jammies kind of people, okay? So when you're home and when you're comfortable, what you wear at home is probably, not always, 
but probably not what you just go out and about or head to work in. Well, yes, comfy pants, Walmart, they go hand in hand, absolutely. Maybe not so much with work. But we've got outfits for work, and we've got outfits when it comes to being comfortable. We've got outfits when it comes to sporting events, and we've got certain things uh, when it comes to a funeral not everybody, but a lot of times black tends to be the color, a little kind of the color of, of mourning at times. And so the clothing is appropriate for the occasion. Now, sackcloth and ashes was kind of the appropriate clothing for this aspect of humility. This, this idea of I want to get my heart and my, my life right with God, sackcloth and ashes. You'll, you'll see it mentioned a number of times. Sackcloth was kind of a goat hair garment which severely irritated the skin. Goat hair or, or maybe you think of like burlap. I mean, rough, rugged, itchy, scratchy. How many of you would love to just be lounging around the house in burlap or itchy goat hair? That's probably not the outfit that we would use. But when they would wear sackcloth, this was symbolic of humility in the sight of God. It's the complete opposite of the power suit. You know, power suit, the power outfit. This, this is indicating the occasion of sackcloth and ashes is indicating a heart of humility. I want to make sure I'm right in God's sight. Ashes, rather symbolic of our mortality. Ashes or, or dust, you've heard the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So uh, imagine these individuals maybe sitting on the ground in their itchy burlap goat skin fur, taking handfuls of dust or ashes and tossing them in the air. That's not necessarily what we think of as the most comfortable or work-related outfit, but it's an outfit for the occasion of humility. I want to get right with God. And so rather than boastful and sticking my chest out and saying, look at me, it's, God, I'm here to look at you. I'm here to focus on you. So I'm going to wear sackcloth, uh, take part in these ashes. It's a serious recognition. I've messed up. I've done wrong. I'm in, involved in a life of sin. I want to make sure I'm right before God. And so this is a part of that occasion. They're fasting. They're taking part in sackcloth and ashes. Then there's also separation. Note verse 2. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. Quick question for you and I. What are some things or what are some people or what are some concepts or ideas that perhaps we might need to separate ourselves from? See, the Israelites were called by God to live separate and set apart. Uh, there's a word called sanctify. Sanctified, separated, set apart, and yet in the Israelites' day and culture, were they living that way? Unfortunately, no. So many times throughout the Old Testament, we see them allowing all of these individuals from these other nations, serving all of these other gods to infiltrate, and then they, their hearts would turn towards the other gods of the other nations and turn away from the one true God. 
Their hearts were shifting. Their hearts were turning towards others. In fact, in many cases, they were intermarrying with these individuals whose hearts were serving other gods. And so what they're doing here is they're now separating themselves from foreigners. This is not, uh, you know, about the concept of race. This is about the concept of spirituality. They're separating themselves from other people who are not seeking God, who are not serving God. So separation. Are we sometimes too comfortable with the things of our world? That we just blend right in. Because how many of you love to stick out? Not too often. I mean, you know, sometimes there's that phrase about you be you and, you know, be the best version of you. Most people don't like to stand out. We tend to want to blend in. And so, unfortunately, what happens many times is, spiritually speaking, we can tend to just blend in. Rather than living separate, rather than living distinct and different from the world, we tend to live like the world, to where someone might not even know that you're a Christian. Now, there's probably been some times in your life when someone has said, oh, you must be a Christian. Have you gotten that at times? You're in the mall, you're in a store, you're in a restaurant, and maybe how you act or how you speak or how you carry yourself, someone says, oh, you must be a Christian. They're indicating they see something or hear something in you that seems different from the world. Now, maybe at times you've also heard this phrase. You get around the conversation and you talk about the fact that you go to church or talk about the fact that you're a Christian. If you've ever heard someone say, huh, I didn't know you were a Christian. Ooh. If no one knows that we're living different from the world, no one knows that we're honoring and serving God, then how are we truly living? And so here in Nehemiah's time, not only are they fasting, not only are they putting on sackcloth and ashes, indicating we're serious at God, they're separating themselves from the things of the world. Came across this quote that says, separation without devotion to God can become isolation. But devotion to God without separation is hypocrisy. Did you catch that? There's a concept. I want to be devoted to God. And if I devote myself to God, but I don't separate from the world and I don't live different than anybody else around me, it's hypocrisy. I'm saying I'm a Christian. I'm saying I want to serve God. But the way I live and walk and act and move, it's just like everyone else. On the other hand, we say, I want to live separated unto God but I'm not really devoting myself to him. I'm separate from the world, but I, I'm not really devoting myself to God. In Nehemiah's day and time, they're fasting. They're indicating a heart of humility and sackcloth and ashes. They are separating themselves from the foreign influences that would try to steer them away spiritually from God. And as well as getting right with God, the end of verse 2 says that they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Chapter 8, uh, remember, they spent a whole lot of time in God's Word. I mean, they were listening to the Word of God for hours, six hours out of the day. 
And when you hear the Word of God and you're listening to the Word of God or you and I are reading the Word of God, we are confronted with the fact that we're not living right. How many of you have done that? You read God's Word and you realize, ouch, I'm not doing that. I'm not living the way that God wants me to. And so it prompts us to do what? Get right, confess our sins. That's what they were doing. They had heard about the word of God. And so now in response, they're wanting to get right by fasting, sackcloth and ashes, separating themselves, and now confessing sins. Now what's interesting, it says that they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So many times we can be really good at pointing fingers at others, right? It would be so much easier to point the fingers towards the ancestors. Well, you know, our parents, our grandparents, all of those generations that came before us, you know, they were the ones who were living away from God. Maybe they were. But you see that their fingers are not just pointed at the ancestors. It says that they confessed their sins as well as the ancestors. They were seeking to take responsibility. You and I can be really good at spotting someone who's not living for God. And if we're not careful, that pointer finger comes out. Oh, did you look? Did you hear that? Did you see that? I can't believe what he or she did. And we point the finger. But remember, what about us? Are we living the way that God wants us to live? Are we speaking in pure the way that God wants to live? They were confessing their sins. Reminds us of the scripture that we've mentioned many times. 1 John 1, 9 says what? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We like the middle part and the end part. We like the forgiveness part. We like the cleaning part. We like the brand new start part. What's the very, very first word? Two letters, starts with I, ends with F. If. In other words, it starts with confessing our sins. If we do this, if we confess, the good news is God will forgive. God will clean. God will give a brand new start. And that's what we see at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 9. Yes, they're fasting. Yes, the, the heart and the attitude of humility is sackcloth and ashes. We're going we're gonna to wear some scratchy clothes and throw some dust in the air. We're going to separate ourselves from the influences that are going to take me away from God. But I'm going to confess God, it's not just what my family has done. It's not just what my ancestors has done. It's not just what those who have come before me have done. But God, I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to get right with God. You want revival? A renewal? A refreshing in your own heart, in your own family, here in our church, in our land, in our nation? It starts with getting right with God. That's what Nehemiah and the people here, the Israelites were doing, getting right with God. Secondly, what do we do? We worship God. Verse 3, it says, They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Pause right there. You and I hear the word quarter of a day, and we probably think six hours. In our minds, 24 hours a day, a quarter of that is six. Now, 
This is still a lot of time, but most scholars look to this, and the, the concept of time, the, the way the Jews would uh, look at time, was typically the daylight hours. The day would start at 6, so whenever you read in Scripture about the third hour, that really means 9 o'clock. The sixth hour would be noon. A number of those hours are mentioned when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So roughly 6 to 6, the daylight hours, are, they're not blessed with the lights and electricity that we have. So they're reckoning the day is about 12 hours. So listen, it's still a long period of time, a whole lot longer than we're going to spend in church together today. But a quarter of the day, that's about three hours. So three hours they're listening to and reading from the Word of God. How many of you read God's Word for three hours a day? But not just that. Then what does it say? They spent another quarter, three hours in confession and in worship. Can you imagine? Six hours out of your day, six out of the 12 waking daylight hours, you're listening to and now responding to and confessing sins. Verse 4, standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani, they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. They spent a portion of this time in this chunk of chapter 9. It's about worshiping God. We cannot separate the worship of God from the word of God. Here's the thing. The more we read God's word, the more we realize how sinful we are and how we are to confess our sin and make things right. And as we do that, we are confronted with a mighty and a pure God, Heavenly Father. We're consumed by the goodness and the greatness of God. And as we see how awesome and good and great he is, we respond in Worship, it's this cycle, the word of God, the confession of sins, and then worshiping our God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I mean, there is no one like God. You ever, in the midst of something, whether it's you know, looking at a sunrise, sunset, you look at the creation of God, and you realize, wow, how incredible he is. Maybe you think about the, uh, the beauty in, uh, of the human body, the, the beauty of animals, the beauty of plants, the intricacies of all of those items, and you're confronted with the power of God. You think about the goodness. You think about the greatness of God. It's not just about saying, I want to make sure that I'm right with God. I want to make sure I am spending some time honoring God and worshiping God. It's not just during that segment of our Sunday morning service. We have a worship time. And tonight is a worship and prayer time. But it's not just on a Sunday where we worship God. We, we can honor and worship God any day and every day, and it's not just about listening to worship music. 
but our life can be a life of worship to God. Sometimes we're so focused on what God gives or what we want him to do for us, we tend to be rather selfish in our prayers. It's kind of like the Santa Claus prayers. I mean, we're, we're getting here, we're getting close to Christmas, and everyone's making lists, and, and people kind of have that aspect with God. Oh, God, gimme, 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 I want to, I want to, I want to. And we've got our Christmas wish list for God. The only reason is we know, well, God's good and God's mighty and God's powerful. God can do a bunch of stuff, so let me just ask him for a bunch of stuff. And we ask and we walk away without worship. They were not just going to God, asking for stuff. They were spending time in worshiping, speaking, proclaiming who God is, the goodness and greatness of our God. Yes, we can worship together, and we've done some of that already today. We're going to do some more of that tonight in a worship and prayer night. And it's, it's neat, and it's special to be able to do that together, but you and I can honor and worship God individually, on our own, each and every day. Not just getting right with God, worshiping God. So revival, renewal, Refreshing. It's getting right with God. It's worshiping God. Number three, we need to learn from the past. Learn from the past. Now, this next passage of Scripture, it's a large chunk. We're not going to be able to read all of it. We're going to summarize some of it for you. The biggest part of the prayer, verses 7 to 37. But how many of you, you've heard this kind of a phrase, and it's quoted in different ways. But he who forgets the past is condemned to repeat it or destined to repeat it. You've heard that phrase? It's been used a lot of times. Sometimes people use it in sports or they use it in politics or they use it in history that you've got to learn the lessons from the past, right? Lessons about this land or lessons about this civilization, lessons about this, lessons about that. And what we're going to see in this passage, the Israelites needed to learn from their past. This part of the prayer, it's focusing about the history of Israel. It's talking about God's goodness. It's talking about his greatness, all the mighty things that God has done. But they're then seeking to learn from it. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we read this. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We can learn from the past. How many of you have messed up and failed big time at something, anything? I would venture to say we've been pretty good at doing that. The question is, do we learn from it? Right? I mean, what, what's the, the old saying about the child who sticks their finger in the electrical light socket? They'll never do that again. I mean, there's a whole host of things. You do it once, and you learn from it, right? Whether that's a, a child doing something or, or maybe having a, a spanking or a discipline as a result, or whether that's you and I doing something in school or doing something in the job or in the workplace or out in society, we do something, we fall flat on our face, and we go, oh, I need to learn from that. I'm not going to repeat that. This large chunk of chapter 9, it's recounting. 
Here's all of the mighty things of God throughout the history here of Israel. We've got to learn from the past. Verses 7 through 18, God is forming the nation of Israel. And it recounts a little bit of that history, how he chose Abraham. He brought him out of her, made the covenant with him. Leads through some of the Old Testament scriptures and thoughts into the land of Egypt. Remember how they were in Egypt. God heard their cries. God heard their suffering. And God delivered them out of Egypt. God was forming the, la- the land and the nation He gave them the law while they were out there. And in the midst of that, the scripture says they were arrogant and did not obey. You or I ever been arrogant? Think we just knew it all and we plunged ahead doing our own thing? Only sometimes to fall flat. So this part of the prayer, they're saying, we've got to learn. As God was forming the nation, we were not learning. Yet... The prayer says God's forgiving, God's gracious, God's compassionate, God's slow to anger, God's abounding in love. And in spite of everything that they did, in spite of all that they did not learn, the text says God did not desert them. Learn from the past. In spite of the mess ups, in spite of the mistakes, in spite of not living according with God's word, God was a forgiving God. Then verses 19 through 21, God's now leading and guiding and directing his people. Remember, it was on a daily basis, even though they were disobeying. Remember how God led them and guided them in the wilderness. Scripture talks about a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. Much better than GPS, much much better than uh, anything that you could use on the phone. It's just, hey, follow that pillar of cloud. Follow the pillar of fire. God was leading and guiding and directing his people. They were wandering in the desert for 40 years, but God led them. And in fact, verse 21 says they lacked nothing. Their feet did not swell. Their clothes did not wear out. How many of you want some clothes like that? That don't wear out after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I mean, you know, if you've got kids or grandkids, I mean, it just takes a handful of months and they outgrow them. Or they, they you know, get a hole in the knees, they get whatever, they, they get a hole in the shoes. God is leading and guiding and providing, and this concept of providing the next number of verses, 22 through 25. He provided for them in the wilderness. He helped them defeat their enemies, the kingdoms, the nations that were around them. He blessed them with children and multiplied them. He brought them into the land. The land was fertile. Houses were there. They were furnished. Wells were already dug. Fruit trees were there ready to pick. God gave them so much more than they really deserved. They didn't earn it. God blessed them. God provided them. And in verse 25, it says that they reveled in his great goodness. You ever been struck? Sometimes you just stop and think. Not that life's perfect, but you stop and think, God, you are so incredibly good. Thank you for your blessings. This is what they're doing. They're looking to the past. They're seeing God's blessings. They're seeing God's directions. They're seeing God's provisions. And yet they're seeing how they were not faithful to God. Because verses 26 to 31, God is correcting his people. 
Even though God had more than met their needs, they were rebellious. They would often try to eliminate his messengers, right? The, the prophets. God would speak to the prophets. The prophets would speak to the people. And sometimes they'd try to do away with the prophet because they didn't want to hear the truth that was coming from them. Instead of praising God, they're blaspheming God. What was the result? God handed them over to many of their enemies, to many of the nations around them. It was correction. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. God allowed other lands and other nations to conquer. So this large passage of Scripture, they're saying, we must learn from the past. Brings in these last few verses from 32 to 37, uh, the present day dealing of God with his people. And ultimately, to, to summarize those few verses, they're basically saying, God, you are faithful and we are not. We've sinned. In the text, it mentions about kings, priests, leaders, ancestors. In other words, none of us are exempt. Yeah, there, there's some good people, but every single one of us whether you're the leader as a king, whether you're the spiritual leader as a priest, whether you're just a, a leader, leader, an ancestor, every single one of us, it's not just them, it's us even now, God. We have sinned. And the final words of verse 37 says, we are in great distress. We hear that all the time. How? Whether it's about our land, whether it's about our nation, our world, our this, our that, we're in great distress. If we would just learn from the past, and that's what Nehemiah and the individuals here of Israel are trying to nudge us to understand. Get right with God, worship God, but learn from the past. Don't, don't jump back into the, the same sin, the same mistakes that we've done in the past. Learn from it. Finally, number four. Final verse of chapter 9 really is going to tie in to chapter 10 once we get there next time together. But the concept is this. You and I must move forward with God. Check it out, verse 38. It says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Move forward with God. Once we get right with him, once we worship, once we learn, we've got to put something into practice, put it into action, move forward. This word called commitment. Make a commitment to God. It's an action, not just a word. You and I know the phrase is right. Talk is, talk is cheap. And actions do what? Actions speak Louder than words. So the Israelites here and Nehemiah leading them, he says, it's not just about our words to say, God, we've done wrong. God, we confess. We need to now do something about it. We've got to put it into practice. We've got to get into action, not just words. Not just to say, God, I'm sorry, but I'm, just, I'm going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. They're making an agreement. We are going to live different. They make an agreement. They make a, a commitment to God. God, the future is going to look different from our past. I came across this. I found it interesting. The Australian coat of arms 
has a picture of an emu and a kangaroo. Emu and a kangaroo. Now, the, the ancestors there and the, the founding fathers perhaps chose those particular animals because they share a common trait. And I didn't know it until I read about it. But emus and kangaroos can only move forward. They can't move backward. The three-toed foot of the emu makes it fall if it steps backward. And the kangaroo's large tail prevents it from going backward. So they, they place these animals on the crest on their coat of arms to indicate as a nation, as an individual, we need to move forward. Same thing spiritually in our walk with God. Don't keep looking to the back. Don't, don't keep going to the past, living in the past, repeating all of the same sins of the past. Let's move forward in and with God. Let, let's not get in the cycle to say, well, I've identified the sin and I confess my sin. God, cleanse me and forgive me. But instead of moving forward, I turn around and go right back into the sin I just asked God to cleanse and forgive me of. We tend to see that a lot in the Old Testament, right? And as we're reading through, you're reading through the Old Testament, and you read about the people of Israel, how they served God, and God blessed. But then don't we see how they turned from God? They lived their own way. They lived their own direction. And God gave them over to these other lands, but particularly the, the book of Judges. It's a, it's a cycle. God gives them over to another land because they're going back doing the exact same thing they asked cleansing and forgiveness of. God allowed another nation to come in to, to oversee them, to rule. Things got so bad, finally they called out, they cried out to God, God, we're sorry, we confess our sins, help us, rescue us, save us, deliver us. And guess what? God was faithful. God had a heart of love, and God would send a deliverer. And we read about deliverer after deliverer throughout the book of Judges. God used kings, God used prophets. And God would deliver the land of Israel They'd say, oh, thank you, God. And then what would they do? They'd go right back into the exact same thing. Maybe it was with a, a God of another nation, but they would go back into the exact same thing they had done. And so when we look at chapter 9, chapter 9 ends with an agreement. It ends with the people of Israel saying, God, we want to be serious, not just to put it in our words where we say, God, cleanse me and forgive me, Help our actions to be those that we go forward honoring and obeying you. Do we mean business with God or is it just lip service? On a Sunday, maybe our hearts are soft and sensitive to God. We say, yes, God, cleanse me, forgive me. But by the time we get home or by the time we head to school or to work or wherever we go on Monday, we jump back into the same thing that we just asked God to cleanse and forgive us of. On Sunday. So the challenge here from Nehemiah chapter 9, it finishes out with the challenge of commitment. It finishes out with the challenge of moving forward with God. Not just words, God. Help my life to be a life filled with actions. Next time together as we jump into chapter 10, this verse 38 is maybe even most would say 
should be the first verse of chapter 10. So we're going to revisit this verse next time. And we're going to see in chapter 10 what were some of their commitments. They didn't want it just to be words or lip service. They wanted to put it into practice. When it comes to revival, renewal, refreshing, you and I have got to get right with God. Worship God. Learn from our past, but move forward with God. 